Hello and welcome to another episode of the ABC Music Talk podcast. In this show, we'll be talking about what happens to individuals working for companies when a change of ownership occurs. This, therefore, fits neatly into the lifestyle category of this podcast, as this is the sort of thing that no one really prepares you for uh, and is often not talked about as much uh, and how, you know, how it affects those involved. This, of course, uh, is, is no better way of doing this than talking to someone who was uh, on the inside while some of the most significant and seismic changes that the music industry has gone through in the past 20 years occurred. Uh, in particular, uh, for this episode, uh, the merger of Sony and BMG and the build-up to, uh, to Universal buying EMI. And that person and guest of this show is Jan Melus. Uh, welcome to the show. Hey Alex, well, uh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our interview. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I, I hope it's going to be fun. So uh, you actually have a couple of firsts uh, that uh, that you know are for my my uh, podcast. So, but you're the very first phone interview I've ever done. So I hope the uh, the technology doesn't uh, you know let us down. You're also the first foreign national uh, on the show. Um, and you're also, uh, a, a, you know, we're, we're relative strangers to each other. And I think that's worth like, just talking uh, about very briefly. Um, so we, you know, neither of us can actually remember how we, we got in contact with each other. So um, that potentially was over a beer at some point <clears throat> or a conference or something like that. Um, but we, we kind of refound ourselves through LinkedIn, uh, which is, of course, a wonderful way of staying in touch with people. Um, and, uh, uh, and what was interesting in particular was that you started your podcast at roughly the same time as I started mine. Although I think you, you know, like twins argue about the, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm three, three seconds older than you or something, you know, like you're 22 days older than me, uh, in terms of podcast. So, so well done. <laughs> All right. So in fact, so as I just talked about the podcast, let's talk about yours. Um, so you, you've got a podcast called, uh, the business artist. Um, yeah. And I will put a, a link to your show in the show notes, uh, but uh, you can just search the business artist on you know any of your favorite podcasting platforms. Um, and it and it's a, it's a really interesting concept and kind of really spoke to me. Um, you know, I'm a failed musician, uh, but a, a businessman, um, and therefore you know the two things are sort of you know connected that way. Um, mm. And and also I you know I started my own company to I suppose. Uh, release some of my artistic or my creative uh you know uh feelings and aspects about my life um and of course started you know the, the podcast that i started i guess is a sort of a product of me being a business artist so uh so when i came you know came across your your podcast it really you know really really stood out to me really you know really kind of connected with you know how i feel about you know my life right now so uh so thank you for doing it i think it's fantastic um and just for the, for those at home it's it's focused on entrepreneurs um yeah, it's, uh, it's mainly uh, focused on people who are entrepreneurs or who want to become entrepreneurs uh, because I think you have to be a business artist uh, to be an entrepreneur. And a business artist really makes uh, means that, that, you, that your art is business. So you, like, a, like an artist, uh, know, thinks about his or her art. Maybe it's music or it's painting. Um, or it's architecture. Business is also an art. Even Andy Andy Warhol said this. And you can do business in a very artful way if you do it uh, in a way that you express yourself and you do it, do it in a way that you create something new to the world. Um, if you um, also do it from 
from a point of view that you want to do something beautiful. Uh, I think you can do business as an artist as well. And I needed a long time. I always had this fight in me if I'm an artist or a businessman until I found out that my art is business. And that's what I want to, you know, give to people and teach people uh, that you can do the business this way. And I think it's a very successful way to do business and also a very fulfilling way. And, and I guess you 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 arrived at this uh, through some of your your experiences, uh, which is you know kind of what I want to want to get into. Um, I mean, it sounds like you had a, a health issue as well, which we don't necessarily need to talk about, but um, it's up to you. It's up to you. Um, but but yes, yeah, so, I mean, um, so so kind of what what's your origin story? How did you kind of get into the the music business and you know and all the rest of it? Yes. So. Um... In, in 1991, when I was 16, uh, the techno scene started to really evolve, or maybe before, but that's when I got to know it. And we started to go in clubs and the whole city where I lived were, were on, on techno music. And yeah, so our heroes were the DJs and the live acts um, at this time, like... The Prodigy, for example, Carl Cox, um, but also German DJs like Tanit, Westbam. Um, and uh, we wanted to do the same. So we DJed or we also produced music. Um, and actually, I was rather, when we've been in the studio, I rather had like ideas, but we had like a, like a band, like you could say a techno band. So our idols were like the Prodigy. And we, with friends together, we produced music on, on Amiga or like really low quality in the beginning. Uh, and we wanted to perform on events. And that's uh, when we had the first problem because nobody wanted to book us. Nobody knew us. And then we just said, okay, we have to do our own event. And we and we just started and found out, oh, you have to pay for location. You have to pay for the DJs. Then we looked for, um, for people who could give us money. And um, all of a sudden, we had an event with big DJs and art and live acts. And we performed on this event. And, and then I thought on this evening, I thought, wow, that's my life. And um, so I really was already in the business kind of because I was organizing everything and driving it and having the ideas business wise for it. Um, and then uh, on the second or third event, we met uh, PCP, which was like a legendary techno act in Germany. And they heard us and signed us to, to their label. Uh, and And maybe only two three months later sony music picked up this so sony music like you was the yeah. first uh, was the first uh, introduction to major uh, labels they picked up one of our records and we had a meeting in frankfurt they've been in frankfurt at that time um and uh, they um i met the anr and i thought wow that's what i want to do i want to become an anr and then actually i went to london uh, a year later or something and just knocked on the door of every record company and uh, there was at Barrick Street, close to uh, Sony Music was then, in the Soho in London, um, a small division of BMG called Logic Records um, with only three people working there. And after I got 20 or 30 no's, uh, they said, okay, you can start working here. And I was also like doing, you know, packages, putting post uh, stamps on the packages like you did. And um, uh, just... Uh, Maybe a month later, a new boss came in and he asked me, what do you want to do? And I said, a &R. So he gave me a big box of, of uh, tapes uh, at this time and I listened to them. And um, uh, yeah, so I, 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 since then I've been A&R. And uh, funny enough, I worked with an artist then called Zant, uh, 
T-Z-A-N-T, I don't know if he's successful now anymore today, but the producer, Jamie White, is, I think is quite successful in many different projects. And uh, we had a track, uh, I earned art for him, with him together called Sounds of Wickedness, and it was number 11 in the UK charts. Yeah, I remember. Oh, you remember that? Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. So, yeah, so I already had then the first hit. And then uh, maybe a year, another year later, BMG Germany asked me to come to their uh, headquarters and uh, to start a label there and I started the hip-hop label which was very successful after three years it was a hard uh, tough time but after three years it was really successful and we were the biggest uh, hip-hop label in Germany but then um, the change started very much to hit us so although you signed successful artists and you've been top on the charts sales went down and that's when I became really interested in in the digital aspect of, of it, uh, because I said, okay, today, if you want to change it, you have to change uh, the the structure because CD sales won't be won't be big anymore in a couple of, of years. Yeah, so then I I researched a lot, and also I think I was 28 years old, and I reported directly to the president, who was something like a celebrity. Bitcoin, not as big, but like Simon Cowell or something, who also right. was a celebrity and uh, voice off shows. So I was, it was a bit, a lot of pressure for me. I think with 28, I couldn't really enjoy it so, so much anymore. I was even a kind of afraid of success. So when the next single just went again to the top, and uh, I was stressed by it in a way, which was strange. So I thought I needed a change. Um, and then I, I gave the label, over gave the label during a phase of one year uh, to to the company. And, and I used actually the Sony BMG change because then uh, also Sony bought uh, as first 50% of BMG in the first step. And so yeah, it was, we had it was, a, it was a merger, wasn't it, in the first instance? Merger. Yeah, exactly. And and I used it to, to basically um, over give the label and so, so said to the new CEO, well, I have the idea, can we not uh, merge my label with a rock label? And then we talked to the heads of the rock label and they said, yes, okay, that's fine. It's both, both indie. So I used it to, to find a, I don't know, a solution to keep the label alive, but put myself out of it basically. Right. Yeah. So well, that's until, until the first uh, change of ownership, that's, that's the story until there. Yeah, no. Okay. Very good. Um, so I uh, I recently interviewed um, somebody called Eamon Ford about his book, The Final Days of EMI, Selling the Pig. Um, but you were actually there. I mean, it's, you know, sort of the guy hands and terra firma time. I mean, I guess you, you, you live through that as well, right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, I mean, yeah. And, and so, yeah. And then you were, and then you were head of uh, marketing for GSA yes. at EMI, right? And, yes. uh, and, the, but, but you also, um yeah, you know, and then also living through the you know the Sony and BMG. So you were A and R, right? So you went from A and R to marketing, right? Okay. Yes. Well, right, that's, right. I I tell you the story about that quickly. So, sure. so after I le I then left uh, BMG, so I was totally A and R person, one hundred percent. And uh, then I left the company, um, and uh, I I studied in Australia actually, and went surfing. And uh, during my MBA, I did an MBA there, and I, every project I could do, I did it in digital music. And um, but still, I wasn't sure what I should do. I mean, it was still not Spotify time, or maybe no, no. I think Pandora was existing, but Spotify didn't exist. So 
Uh, I, I even thought about launching my own Spotify, but uh, but I didn't know how to do it because it wasn't a programmer or so. I, I, I think most people had an idea of launching their own music service at some point. I know I did. <laughs> but then how to do it, that's, that's another game. But yeah, yeah of course. Yes, of course. So I wasn't sure what to do, what my next step was. But then uh, maybe because of the lack of a better vision, I thought, okay, why did you come into the business? Because you you wanted to be an artist, so then I really said, okay, now you do it, and uh, I, I recorded my own album, which was uh, spoken word music on on spoken word on music basically, and um, I, I was influenced by France because I I then married my wife and we lived in France for a short, short time after Australia, and that's uh, where I, where I got to know the artist Grand Cormalat, who was huge in France. I think he's still huge, and he made the spoken word on, on music. I really loved it, and I thought, oh, I bring this to Germany. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I, I released my album, and also because I had such a good track record, Universal gave me a label deal and picked up the album, put a lot of money in it, and um, it turned out, you know, it was a total disaster. Nobody bought it. Nobody wrote about it. People weren't interested in spoken word or music in Germany and also not in the style which I did because German spoken word or poetry slam is very funny and I did it rather like poetic. Um, and the poetry slam scene, they didn't like me either because I just came in and said, hey, I'm doing the first ever poetry slam label and here I am, uh, all of nothing. Yeah. And the poetry scene, and obviously it was an existing scene which, which lived and was organic and, uh, you know, so they didn't like it. So it wasn't fun. It wasn't successful. As an entrepreneur, I started my own label the first time, which I really owned. It was also a disaster. So it was kind of a crisis for me the first time. And... That's when I really thought, okay, you're not an artist, you know, you're, you're not an artist, you're a businessman. So, but I had to work again, of course, uh, to, because money ran out as well at some point. And then I, I um, you know, started as a, as a marketing director at EMI. And then I really, you know, said, no, I'm, I'm absolutely 100% business. I don't want to even, even when artists came, I wasn't so, like, I worked Robbie Williams, David Guetta, directly and uh, but even there I, I really stayed away I didn't involve myself so much before I slept with the artists at their homes I went to holidays with them I went in the evening they always called me 10 o'clock or whatever but this time I really you know didn't engage myself at all and only concentrated on the numbers on running the business optimization uh, really like this and uh, I think it, it worked in the whole concept did a good job I think it was a backbone for many but I always felt uh, like like I'm living in a box, and um, like I couldn't like I couldn't uh, uh, feel my life in a way. Um, yeah, but that's that's the stage I've been in at, at EMI and when the merger or when the when the company was bought. So all the time when we've been been at EMI, there was uh, talks of somebody buying it. And then um, there was a big, uh, um, the last hurrah maybe was like the head of publishing EMI came in and he had like a big vision to merge publishing and uh, recorded music and make it, made it one big company together uh, and keep it alive and don't sell it. But in the end, it sold separately, not together. And uh, recorded music was bought by, by Universal Music. And, and in the end, it was totally, you know, Basically, nothing nothing really stayed out of EMI, only the artists and maybe the logo on some uh, things. But that was it. EMI, as it was then, is dead today. 
so I mean, so so when did uh, when did you when did you know things were you know first going to change? Like either during the, the the JV or the or the acquisition, either either company. I mean, you know, like were were there things that you kind of spotted happening at, at, at the organisation? Because presumably you weren't you know in the in the acquisition talks or in the merger talks. Because you know, yeah, so but like as a you know as a sort of you know foot soldier, uh, you know as as many of us are in in these big organisations. You know, kind of did you start to get a feeling that things were starting to, to, you know, to, to change around you. So like, I think it was kind of similar to the Sony BMG. Most of the time in the beginning, it's the announcement. Then everybody's afraid. Everybody's uncertain. Then you hear the voices from top management. No, everybody, everything is fine. Nothing will change. And then nothing changes for one year or something. Yeah. Or half a year, or one year. And then the, uh, what I've noticed as well now when I work with many clients where I've also seen those takeovers again. So what, what's happening then is um, top management and maybe key employees get like a package to stay. So when that's all sorted out and then also um, maybe they want to get rid of certain people that's also sorted out, then changes happen. Right, right. And then you see like the implementation of changes and um, but it's – it's a lot of rumors all the time. Rumors, um, all the t- that's that's worse probably is uh, in this phase is the suffering because of things that could happen and because of uncertainty. So, so is that a, a lack of information? Do you think that you're kind of getting from management at that point, and it's creating sort of paranoia, which creates these rumors, or rumors create paranoia? Either way, is, is, yeah. is it information? Is it communication? Do you think? Well, the question is, how can it be done better? Because they are not allowed to talk about it often. They Maybe they don't even know. Yeah. Yet. Uh, I mean, top management probably doesn't know either, but the decision makers maybe do their plans and get the, I don't know, McKinsey's in to do the recommendations. And in this phase, obviously, there's no communication. And uh, even, you know, I uh, with one um, takeover I've recently seen, they do it really well. I mean, they put in apps for where, where the employees can communicate and ask questions. They they have one app where they can ask even the the CEO of the global company, and they are they answer the questions. Really? And yeah, yeah I, 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 okay. This is this is interesting. Okay, so so can you talk about which company this is, or would you rather not? It's, it's fine. If you don't. Fortunately, I cannot. But no. it's in the gaming. It's uh, gaming. Okay, so different industry. A different industry. Yeah, it's gaming. Uh, but I've never seen. Uh, takeover done so well although it will end up the big company 100% overtaking the small one and the whole culture of the big company is going to be you know infused in the employees of the old company yeah. it's like again like like Sony uh, like EMI and Universal nothing will stay of EMI and now nothing will stay of the old company and, and, and they manage it really well with those apps and communication but still I mean the, the uncertainty is there people are leaving People are thinking or rather look for a new job than waiting here. What will happen with me? It's really tough. It's really tough. Yeah. I mean, so I, I, I have sort of questions around uh, around all of those kind of diff- different things. So let, let's start with um, like your experiences. So, I mean, you know, how, how did your sort of day to day start to get affected? Like kind of what what were the things that started to change? Or, or was it or was it not really like that? It was kind of there was a uh, yeah. a singular day where everything changed. Yeah. No, the day-to-day stuff uh, stays really long the same. I mean, like, for example, in music marketing, 
even in the very end phases when there was absolutely uncertainty and nobody knew who to report to anymore, there was still budgets available to do videos, to do marketing campaigns, to do rollout of campaigns. Um, so that really, that was the last thing that stopped right. because it's the operational business kind of keeps the same. But anything of long-term planning or mid-term planning, then you always, you know, you, you don't get answers anymore. Right, or it's right, uh, right, right. next week, next week. Um, so it's really tough to make plans. But the rollout of, of operational activities, that's really, you know, it's like if you're on the boat and nothing, no communication anymore, you don't know where you're going, you're still, you know, paddling. Paddling yeah. is... Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it's... Uh, it's fascinating sort of a period of period of change i think for everybody um so uh so what were the most like difficult challenges you faced i mean obviously you've just sort of talked a little bit about that that sort of lack of ability to get answers for strategic uh you know questions that you might have was it was it just that or was it was or was it because you were i don't know losing members of your team or you know kind of some of the other things i think um one problem is um the i mean emotionally is that you build up stuff for example maybe so for example i built up um at emi dance music as almost like an an own division within emi so with david getta and we had dead mouse and other artists so we we built that up like almost a label within emi you now with uh, staff and and branding uh, for dance music and um, you know that this which everybody was aware of at EMI uh, but it wasn't like somewhere really written on paper or so so it didn't for university it just didn't exist right. uh, right. that was an emotionally really hard to deal with it's, it's almost the worst I think when you build up something and then it's uh, just taken away because it doesn't make sense for the new owner um, and maybe they don't even understand it or maybe you don't even get the chance to tell them that it's there I think that's, for me, that was the worst. And that's why I am actually went in the process then to Tidal as well. Ah, yes. Well, I, I mean, I'd, I'd like to talk about Tidal as well. Um, I've, I have uh, perhaps some questions about that at the end. Um, so, uh, I mean, was any, was any part of it fun? I mean, you know, did it, did it feel rejuvenating, the idea of like, big change happening and being part of something new and like you know you start seeing some different new stuff come into the company that or, or, or was it or, or were the, your experiences very specifically not like that I mean either way because I, I think I think that the two things can happen when I my own personal experience uh you know or at least what I've heard from the the change from the company that I used to run in grooves um uh internationally and uh they recently got bought by universal and i know from talking to some of the, the people that i used to work with there some are excited and some were you know were f kind of full of fear um so how, i mean how are how your because you had two experiences were they both the same Did, were, they, were they both just kind of fearful or were they oh this could be quite fun this could be good this could be beneficial to some of the things that i want to achieve in in my career yeah i think uh it's definitely possible. I mean, it always depends on which position you are at the first label. And then, yeah. I mean, if, if you are talented and, I mean, all of the people were scared at EMI, but today all of them have great jobs, you know? Right. So uh, the music industry is, is not a big industry and there are 
are not uh, so many experienced people. So I think if you have this skill, um, you will always get a new job. And normally, I think there's no reason to be scared, normally. But you might go through an uncomfortable phase. Right. That's that's what you have to go through. And uh, you... It could be that you don't want to continue. I just didn't want to continue. I, I wasn't looking for something forward for Universal, but maybe if Spotify would have bought EMI, let's say, right. just uh, just for you know to make the argument, I would have looked forward to it big time. Right, right, I, right, right. Definitely, would have been amazing for me. So I think it's, it can definitely be uh, thrilling to have a new owner. It just depends what they bring on board. But EMI was such a um, you know, they've been in Cologne in Germany, and Cologne is a very special city with a special charisma. And uh, and so the, the company was just different. There were so many people working there, not me, but I only worked there for three years, uh, but other people for 24 years, for 38 years, yeah. for 37 years. So for, for them, it was such a big change. But I'm sure today they will all say, well, it was great that we did it. <laughs> Interesting. Um, okay, so th these days you're... Uh, an advisor um, to, to various you know, individuals and companies. Um, so thinking about this sort of, you know, change of ownership, like, do you, would, uh, do you have any sort of like, you know, tips, suggestions, or like a sort of a playbook for, for, for companies? So therefore executives that might be approaching the, the idea of, you know, acquiring another company or doing a merger, like, what would you, what would you tell them? Like, from the point of view, I suppose, of one being an advisor, but also somebody who's lived through it. So, like, what are the things to look for and what are the things to kind of, you know, take care of? Yes. So, I think um, what I just mentioned uh, to provide these platforms for communication is extremely important. Give the people the chance to ask questions on them. I mean, you have stuff like, you know, there are even platforms today existing. I, I can't remember the names, but uh, something like Slack for uh, change management or for change phase to for employee transparency is existing. So use those platforms, use the existing technology to make the change uh, as swift as possible for the people. But I don't think that's enough. So what I think ultimately, why are people scared of changes? Because they think, how does it affect me? So I think um, what would be really important is to, as soon as possible, uh, show the people their opportunities in the new structure. Um, and so so from an ownership perspective or from a decision-maker perspective, they should have the goal to be very quick in finding out how the new company should look at, uh, what kind of staff do they need, uh, what kind of skill set do they need, which staff do they need to make redundant if they have to they should try not to but, but if they have to and then who they want to keep and then let them know as soon as possible both of them and uh, maybe with enough lead time for the ones uh, they have to make redundant i think that will be the biggest factor to to come back to you know to make the company the employees um confident because what i've also noticed in those changes or Every time also um, performance drivers left the company. It's not that only the weak leave. You know, there are some who might think they have great chance, but also some performance drivers, like really great people leaving the company. 
yeah well of course and and they're often the ones that uh you know are able to go and get that 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 new gig because uh they're they're well known in the business and uh, probably been turning down job opportunities right uh yes no absolutely um and of course when you start to see some of those superstars leave that is another factor on on the others that are left because they're they're there sometimes in part because there is some you know you know luminary executive that they admire right and they want to work with them um you know i've heard i've heard those stories before um about various people you know certainly like big major record companies um and uh you know and a lot of the staff kind of follow them around you know depending on where they go with their with with their gigs um yeah it could be very sort of destructive to sort of company culture can't it when when you start to break apart those teams mm-hmm. um so same sort of question i guess you know as from the point of view as an advisor um but kind of you know the other side of it what what are the things not to do um, and you know i guess you sort of slightly covered it there right but whether it was there anything that really sort of sort of stood out other than the kind of lack of communication or not being up front with people or the speed perhaps you know uh, with which you know people are you know making these changes or making these decisions um is there anything in particular that stood out yeah so what i've noticed is um from the company who was bought and it was clear to everybody that um that it will be taken over completely by the new company uh, there's still some um leadership persons who who can't uh, you know give up their their influence their um their power and also their um, their drive to to make people work so one one thing which also put, uh, you know just created a lot of frustration with staff and everybody knew it's over that there were leadership people who drove them to to work like 10 hours a day to give everything for the company uh, to you know to use all their passion for the projects in the end nobody could could believe it anymore so i think uh, from the from the company who's bought i think a, a sense of reality is also important so sometimes it's always good to motivate it's always good to show people the positive side but also it's important to um, acknowledge the suffering of the people acknowledge uh, the frustrations of the people and um, you know realize it, it that's real it's not something they make up so that's one advice i would give and um, from the company who's buying i think it's extremely important to not come in as the um, bully right so you know to uh, to tell to themselves it's important that they know why are they buying the company is it maybe that something the company has which we do not have and if that's the case tell this to the company tell this to the staff yeah. we buying yeah. you because you are big in digital we are not we want to learn from you right yeah so that that's i think this is something very important and so not to do is to come in okay here we now that's how we play the game everything you did until today is not important anymore do it the way we say now 
That's what they shouldn't do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, yeah, I, th I think uh, some of that strategic vision of the reason why a transaction is taking place is is often not communicated. I mean, so, uh, I mean, sometimes you get a kind of a, an overarching. Oh, this is going to be great because we're going to be bigger, or you know, we're going to be in more business verticals, or whatever. And you're going to be able to take advantage of this new company's uh, you know prowess in whatever it is that they specialize in, and and you know, and therefore it's you know, related, and therefore you can use it um but yeah certainly um so because so, it's an interesting one of the other things you just talked about there like the idea of sort of telling people you know whether or not they're still to be uh you know uh, employed or not right and because of course I, I think the reason why companies don't announce too much around that um is because they know what's going to happen if you if you say yeah we're going to make some significant changes and there's going to be some you know job losses and it, people do immediately start looking for new jobs right and, and it just completely they lose control at that point so you can sort of understand why these executives don't do it but so I, that's why i was kind of curious about you know what's a really good way of kind of looking after the the welfare and the the mental health of of, of the staff right that that are going to be affected by this um you know because it in an ideal world yeah you would just sort of tell them at the earliest opportunity that you need to go and look for work um <clears throat> I, and i i don't know necessarily what the right answer is other than um Actually, it's one of my uh, one of my favourite films. This is a bit of a guilty pleasure. Uh, it's up in the air with uh, George Clooney, and it's about this guy that flies around the world, letting people go. And and you know, this it's they have this sort of like playbook that they go through, and they sort of you know pull out the brochure, and it's like you know, think about this is an opportunity for you. You know, you your 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 next uh, journey in life. Um, <clears throat> goodness, uh, and uh, and and I, certainly, I, I don't know. I don't know if I've seen a lot of that. That kind of sort of um aid in planning for somebody's next step right that that kind of very sort of yeah it is going to happen but we we're going to help you through it and uh you know i, I personally I, i've been in you know difficult situations where i've really had to kind of fight for you know proper um uh you know packages on the way out should we call them right you know because it's often not in the original employment contract that you're going to get looked after on the way out to give you you know those sort of two three four five six months maybe a year's worth of you know money to kind of get yourself settled again and get yourself up, up, off and running um but yeah i, I wonder if uh, you know that there, there could be more done in, in that sort of area you know so you could be up front and say look guys you know, there are going to be some changes, there's going to be some job losses, but don't worry, you know, we're going to look after people, no one's going to be left on the street and go hungry and all the rest of it, because that, that it, it's sort of, like, at least, I don't, I don't know how you feel about this, but that, that, that sort of, like, very basic human survival level really kicks in, because most people in the music industry, you know, aren't, you know, either from money or have money, right, they're, they're working because they need money to live, and food costs money, rent costs money, etc., um, and, and I think people immediately start to go, how am I going to do this? How am I going to get through the next day? Uh, and so yeah, I, I wonder if, if companies could do a better job of kind of supporting them on that and, and making that part of the, the, the business transaction, right, Yeah, from the outset. Yeah, I, I, am, I agree with you. I agree with you that it's so difficult to do, but I also agree with you that it's extremely important to cover this aspect because, as you say, most people do not come from money. Some have kids. Um, yeah. And and they need every salary because they might might have even mortgages to pay. So yeah, I I can't agree more. And it's it's very important. And that's in the end of the day what the people are worried about, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I had a, a very bizarre experience with um, uh, there was a, a company that I was involved with, a digital distribution company, and it got acquired by um, 
a actually no this was like so first of all got acquired by an, an american telco uh not an, actually not actually a telco but a, a business involved in the, in the telecommunications business and they kind of like ran it for a while didn't really know what they were doing um and then they wanted to sell it and so when it became like the you know the sell-through i was running a team of about 15 people both in the states and in the uk and uh and, and at one point going through this process uh they they approached me and they said good news alex uh, we've got you some money uh so you're going to be okay uh and i was like okay what about everyone else and you know these are people that are you know not literally but bled for me you know they they'd been my team i'd hired every single individual myself you know they, they turned up we got on well we hung out socially um and uh and, it's, and and they went oh no it's just it's just for you um and i was like okay and and i said can i split this up can i give this to to some of the people because I know that you're going to ask them to stay through the transition. And they sort of looked at me as if to say, why on earth would you do that? And and I was like, I just, I just, there's no way I could have slept well at night knowing that I'd got paid off and no one else had given that, you know, a lot of the time it's the other people doing the actual work. I, you know, I was a manager. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, 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 I never told any of them that I, that I did that. And I still see a lot of them now. And I, I've always felt really good about that. Like that, that, and I was 28 at the time, so I didn't have any money, right? <laughs> it's like, um, and uh, I don't know, like I, it's, and I just think a much better way of doing that would have been to create a better formal structure around, you know, looking after all these people, right? I just, it just, there was something about it that just sat really awkwardly with me, and uh, and I wished the company had been a bit more kind of proactive rather than leaving it to me to figure out. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah, just 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 a thought. All right, so you you mentioned Tidal earlier. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually know that company is a Spiro um, and Wimp, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I've been doing this so long that I, I remember the original names of these companies that have been acquired over time. Um, but, of course, these days most people know it as uh, as Tidal. Um, so I did a um, – just changing tack ever so slightly, if that's all right, uh, if we've got time. I know we're slightly tight today. Um, <clears throat> I did a, uh, an episode in my podcast called The Remote Worker. And this is, this is sort of one of those things that um, I think because I've always been the um, – quote unquote the international guy right so that always means that i'm never in the hq right so i'm i'm always the remote worker and as a consequence you know every everything that i kind of create around me you know staff and, and different offices you know they are you know also satellite offices right so i i just want i just wondered if you could just just uh riff r- real quick on kind of your experiences because presumably being in germany you weren't in norway and therefore you weren't in the hq or wherever the hq was i don't know if it, it was stayed in norway or did it get moved to the states or and I was still in Norway when I was there, but I'm just thinking I was if I ever worked in the headquarters. Uh, so I think I'm, at BMG, I mean, the headquarters were in New York. The real headquarters were in New York, and at EMI, they were in London, and in Tidal, they were in Norway. And I think I never worked in the headquarters. Uh, always yeah. worked with the satellite, but but I mean, it was still an office at, at Tidal. We've been, or at Aspiro, or Wimp at that time, I think we've been four people, five people. Right, in okay. Berlin, in Berlin, uh, so it wasn't that the, as remote as as I am today. Um, it was a small, nice office in a cool area in Berlin, right. Kreuzberg. Kreuzberg, of course, where everybody is. 
I just yeah. So I uh, and in in the in the episode, I you know I talked about some of the the you know the the, the challenges that that people go through in terms of like being you know distant time zone, but also geographic, um, perhaps a language barrier. You know, I just wondered if you kind of have any sort of like memories from that, and perhaps some yeah. tips that you know for, for my so because I, I don't know if I explained, but my audience is is people that are just kind of coming into the music industry um, or have only just started um, or thinking about getting into it so it's more about sort of things for them to sort of um you know you know learn for you know from people that have kind of been been through it and lived through it yeah so i think um first of all it's great to work remotely i think um you have more freedom you have more ownership of your own time you have less politics um if you if you do it from home then the only thing you have to maybe Make your mind up about is social, your social life, because good thing in the headquarters, you meet people, you have friends, uh, you, you see people every day. Um, but today you have this uh, co-work. So I think co-working is a great thing if you want to be, uh, you know, other people. So that's that's something which I can only recommend if you have the chance to work remote, at least try it out. I like it. Um, the Also, the other thing is um, because you talked about headquarters and uh, different uh, mentalities, so I think it's what I what I didn't know when I started is uh, really think about the country where your company work uh, comes from, you work for because it's really different. If you work for an American company, if you work for a Scandinavian company, for an English company, for a German company, it's totally different. The culture is totally different, and you feel it. Even if you live in your own country, you feel the difference. Uh, for example, just I mean these are stereotypes, but but definitely the Scandinavians. Uh, so flat, you know, you don't see a lot of hierarchies. Um, you don't see like you do that now at all. Um, you wonder sometimes how they make, how they, why these companies are successful because you think who's taking decisions here, you know? Right. They ask everybody in the end, they still ask, uh, I don't know, the, the um, lady who brings the coffee what she thinks and, and uh, you know, how, how do they take decisions? And then also at two o'clock in the evening, the CFO can come in and say, okay, I go now pick up my kids. Uh, and you say, oh, well, yeah, that's happening here. And in a German company, you know, if you go at seven, people look at you already going today, yeah, right. half, half day today. And there you have clear hierarchies uh, in the US as well. Um, but, and yeah. they have that funny thing about holidays. They, they don't seem to take them very often in America. Uh, whereas, yes. you know, whereas, whereas the Brits, it's part of our, our you know, when you're employment law, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes, there's so many differences, and uh, obviously the the English, uh, the the French, for example, you can never speak directly to them, uh, speak anything direct. The Americans always go direct. Uh, Israelis even more. Uh, yeah. So everybody is, is so different, and the companies are so different. Uh, yeah. So think about it, and maybe inform yourself a little bit about the company culture if it fits to you. I think that's a big recommendation, but it's also interesting to work for different uh, companies, you know, from different cultures. I, I'm really glad that you covered all of that. That was actually one of the parts of the, the, the episode that I didn't cover uh, in, in particular. Uh, I just, I, I didn't think I could articulate it very well, but you just did perfectly there. So thank you so much for that. Um, so I know that we're slightly tight on time. So uh, we're about to hit 45 minutes, which I think is a pretty good length for a podcast, um, for at least ones that I listen to anyway. Um, so thank you very much, Jan. I really appreciate your time. Um, it's been awesome to have you on the show. Um, so uh, listeners at home, do check out Jan's podcast. It's called The Business Artist. Um, I'll put a link in the, in the show notes. Um, but thank you for listening. Um, and as ever, I welcome all feedback, comments and suggestions for future shows. 
Uh, my Twitter handle is at Alex Branson. And if you want to uh, message me directly, just put podcast DM and I'll follow you back. Uh, or, or t- alternatively, go to my website, www.abcmusic.co, uh, and you'll find a contacts page on there with my email address. Uh, so thank you once again. Take care.